Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. And tonight we are still in the vein of worship. All right. Into the word of the Lord here and see what God's word would say to us, amen, this evening concerning this. I've enjoyed being in this, doing this, amen, talking about worship, learning about worship. Exodus 24, I'm going to start with verse number one and then I'll skip down and we'll read a few other verses. The Bible says, starting with verse number one, and he said unto Moses, come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship ye afar off and Moses alone shall come near the Lord but they shall not come nigh neither shall the people go up with him skipping down to verse number 9 then went up Moses and Aaron Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand. Also they saw God and did eat and drink. The Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount and be there, and... I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. For a little while tonight, I'd like to teach along this subject, the vicinity, the vicinity of worship. The vicinity of worship. Amen. Will you join me right now as we pray that God would help us this evening? Father, I come to you today. I'm asking God for your help. Lord, in this place, every heart, every soul, every believer, everybody, Lord, that has come together and congregated here tonight, I pray, O Lord, enrich our lives, God, by your word. God, as we have been, Lord, concentrating upon this theme and this idea of worship for several weeks now, I pray, Lord, that we have just built, Lord, here a little and there a little. God, precept upon precept, Lord Jesus, we just built upon these things, God, to develop an entire picture, Lord Jesus, of this, God, concern of worship that you seek for, that you desire through worshipers. I pray, Lord, help us now, Lord, in the continuance of this service, in the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray, in the church say amen. Amen. You may be seated. The vicinity of worship in Exodus chapter 24 and this uh, stole my attention somewhat today here in Exodus 24 because uh, throughout the entirety of the chapter uh, we really come across three different stations or positions or distances might you say of worship uh, firstly or one of them that is spoken of here in scripture Uh, He spoke of how he had a certain grouping of people, uh, among them being Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders, that was called to a particular place of worship. And out of that, he even had Moses come even somewhat nearer than they were. So you have the whole nation of Israel 
that sat at a certain distance, if we could call it, from the Mount of God where God was. And out of them, he called a group of people uh, to another place of worship that was denoted as afar, afar off worship. And then even out of that grouping, he called Moses even a little closer, and there was a near worship. So those are the three stations. There was worshiping that was taking place uh, in vicinity, if you will, as being near, and there was a group of people then uh, that was denoted as being the worshipers of afar off, all right? And then even beyond them in a further distance on the perimeter, I would like to call it, uh, was the rest of the nation of Israel that was involved in their worship. And so we see, though, that there is a different experience that each of these sets and groups of people experience of God concerning where they are. All of their experiences are not the same. Or might we even say it like this, their perspective of God is not totally the same because of where each one is stationed. When we read concerning uh, Aaron and Nadab and, and Abihu and the 70 elders that are at that location of the afar worship, I'm just saying that because that's the way Scripture says it, at the afar worship spot, the Bible says while they were there in, in the verses 9 through 13 that I read to you, that from that position, from that station of worship, that they, they were able to witness as it were a paved work of sapphire stone that was under his feet and that the body of heaven was in, it was as the body of heaven in his clearness. The, the experience of their worship at a far off, even there the Bible says at that location that they ate and they drank. So there was a certain experience that they had concerning God, a certain perspective that they had of God at that particular location. However, out of that grouping, Moses is called to a deeper place, to a closer place, to a nigh place, to come and worship the Lord. And what Moses experienced closer to God, closer in his worship of God, was vastly different than what they did even up a certain degree of the mountain. Uh, as he became closer in proximity in his worship to God, the Bible says that the Lord conveyed to Moses... Moses then would convey to the people, but God conveyed to Moses the laws, the commandments, the tables of stone. In other words, God in that close relationship worship that Moses had with God, God conveyed then to Moses what pleased him. Whenever he got to that place, if I say like this, part way up the mount, it was eat and drink. And anytime you see eating and drinking, you're talking about fellowship in Scripture. So partway up the mount, whenever worship was comprised and experienced from that position in that place, it was fellowship with God. But whenever Moses went further and got closer to God in his worship, it wasn't just fellowship, it was revelation. He learned what pleased God. Amen. Moses is at a position that he's really getting to know the Lord. What Moses is experiencing with his near worship with God is something that those that are at the base and even further out at the mount, the rest of the congregation of Israel, they're not experiencing what Moses is experiencing because Moses has drawn a little closer in his worship of God. And that brings revelation and that, that brings him the right to know then what pleased God, what makes God happy. And for that matter, it's not that it was just a, you know, a drive-through session for Moses. He was there for 40 days and 40 nights 
on the mount of God in that near close worship vicinity with God experiencing God in so much that God begins to share with him the pattern concerning the tabernacle in the wilderness and takes about seven chapters sharing with Moses this is how I want it to be this is the the plan that you should approach me and how I'd like the children of Israel to approach me that was given to somebody that was in a close worship relationship amen that was with God Amen. And so with that being said, I say that to us tonight, that whenever you get into a close vicinity worship with God, God will share with you things that he doesn't just share with everybody else. Amen. Whenever you get into that close vicinity worship place with God, he'll tell you the things that he likes, the manner in which he likes things to approach him, uh, the way that he likes things. Whenever you get to that place, he'll begin to share with you some things he just doesn't share with every common Joe because they went beyond the base of the mount, beyond just the side of the mount, but they got as close as they could, so to speak, in worship to God. We see this common throughout Scripture. We go to the Old or the New Testament all the way to the last book of the Bible in the book of Revelation. And you'll remember one of the letters that was written to one of the seven churches, the church of Pergamos. And the church of Pergamos was uh, taken by, he, 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 he reprimanded them because they were taken by the doctrine of Balaam, uh, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And the doctrine of Balaam was this. If you remember the Old Testament story of Balaam, uh, he was going to go and curse the people, uh, but he could not curse the people. He could only bless the people. But since Balaam could not curse the people, he found another inroad to corrupt the people. Couldn't curse them, so he corrupted them. And what he did was he taught the Moabites how to corrupt the people of God by intermarrying with them and causing a compromise uh, among the people which caused corruption, he deceived them into thinking uh, through the Moabite people that they could serve two masters, that they could serve. He began to tamper with their worship. Began to tamper with their worship. And as he began to do that, the, the church of Pergamos is being threatened by the Lord, rebuked by the Lord, because they have, they have just bought into this doctrine of Balaam uh, that their worship could be tampered with, that it didn't just have to be soul one throne and soul one God. and So he began to reprimand them. And this is, though, what he spoke to them, all right? In Revelations 2, 17, he said, He that hath an ear, he's speaking to the, the church at Pergamos, who's heard their worships being toyed with. They're allowing that to happen. He says, Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcome." Speaking to the Pergamos church, he's telling them, if you can overcome this, if you can get God back to being what God should be, if you can get soul, just him being the soul God in your life and your worship and your attention toward him, he says, if, to him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the hidden manna? And we'll give him a white stone and the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth saving he that receiveth it. He said, if you can get your worship right, he says, I'll give you to eat of hidden manna. What are you saying, God? He's saying, if you can get your worship right, I can give you something that just isn't given to anybody. Because man in Scripture in the Old Testament, you gathered it as the dew fell on the ground, right? As the Bible says, if you did not, it basically melted or it dissolved. 
it ceased to be or if it was allowed to stay there, it speaks of contamination that worms came upon it. It wasn't everlasting. It was temporal. Just worms came up. So the only place, now listen, the only place that I, I know or read of in Scripture that there's any hidden manna or eternal manna, for that matter, because everything else became corrupt and contaminated, was the manna that was, uh, Omer I believe it was, that was set aside in a golden pot that was put in the Ark of the Covenant that was placed in the Holies of Holies where the all-inspiring presence of God resided. He told the Pergamos church, if you can stop being taken by the doctrine of Balaam and the, and the other groups that's trying to mess with your worship, if you get your worship right, and you're not a base mountain or a side of the mountain, but you draw nigh to me in vicinity to worship, I'll give you hidden manna to eat of manna. And if you're going to eat of the hidden manna, guess where you're at? You're right in my presence because I, hidden manna only comes to people that are in close proximity worshiping me. So he just, he just don't give, you know. Normally if you just had manna around for a while, it would be contaminated, it would dissolve, it would be infested with worms. But he said if you'll overcome, if you'll correct your worship, he said I'm going to allow you to eat of the hidden manna <laughs> the hidden manna was eternal manna know that and we looked at this already year, years <laughs> maybe it seemed like that for a few years ago we looked at this but remember how temporal praise is but worship is eternal and so he says whenever you get your eternal things in alignment your worship he says I'll feed you with eternal things Manna, which would normally be temporal, he said, this is hidden manna that has been preserved. It's not contaminated. There's no worms upon it. It's hidden manna. But not just anybody gets that. He says, those people who have overcame and get their worship right. It's reserved for, if I might say, for true worshipers. Remember the story in the Old Testament of 1 Samuel chapter 5. There's a story of the, the idol Dagon. You'll you remember that uh, the Philistines uh, went into battle against the Israelites. The Israelites took the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. And in that battle, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was taken from them by the Philistines. And they take that Ark back and they set it in the house of Dagon, the god of Dagon, or Dagon being the god. And they put it in there. And uh, they seemingly go to bed. They rise the next morning and Dagon's fallen down on his face. And, and Dagon doesn't get back up on his own. Uh, they have the people that come in and serve this great, powerful, almighty God, picking their God back up and putting him back on his place right there. And, and they go to bed that night, and lo and behold, they come in, and he fell down again in so much that his hands are kind of broken off, his head's broken off. The only thing that's left is his stump. And I don't know why that's so funny, but it is. And okay, But, but all this has happened. And so they, they, these people constantly have to pick their God back up. But there's a very similarity that's very true in our own lives, and that is sometimes there's things in our lives that, that we whip, all right? It seems like we got over, and by some unseen force or some, by some way, some powers cause it to stand back up in our life and resist us again. But you know what? They kept God, the Ark of the Covenant, in its spot. And as long as they kept him in the spot where they came back that other time, Dagon was seemingly 
destroyed. It no longer had power over them. As long as you keep God where God should be, remain there. There'll be things that'll try back arise in your life, but if you keep your alignment in the worship of God being God, sooner or later, he's going to fall for the last time. That issue, that circumstance, will far beyond, for the last time, will be beyond repair. And so with all that, understanding that, there are some perks then to worshiping the Lord. There really is. There are some perks. He shares things with people that truly worship him that he doesn't just share with anybody else. For that matter, if we back up in Exodus 23, uh, a chapter prior to our scripture reading tonight, Israel is even encouraged in chapter 23, somewhere around verse 24, and we'll read some verses of scripture. Israel is encouraged, as they oftentimes were, not to bow down or serve or worship other gods. And as a matter of fact, it goes ahead after that encouragement, it goes ahead to describe that here we go, there are some achievable perks of solid service and worship to God. Look at the scripture with me. Here is the encouragement. Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but thou shalt utterly overthrow them and, and, and quite break down their images. Now here comes the perks. And ye shall serve the Lord your God. Remember, service derives from worship. So you shall serve, you shall worship the Lord your God. And look, here's the perks. And he shall bless thy bread and thy water. I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. He says in verse 26, there shall nothing cast their young. In other words, we're not going to have no abortive things concerning livestock or families. You're not going to lose seed. And he says, nor be barren. So you're going to be reproductive. He says in the land. He said, the number of thy days I will fulfill. He says, you don't have to worry about me having you check out prematurely. I said 70 years, I'm going to, I'm, you know, back then, not even, well, that's Psalms, David, you know, but anyway, I'm going to fulfill your days. And he says, I will send my fear before thee and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come. I will make all thine enemies turn their backs to thee. In other words, he says, this land that I've given you that's inhabited with all type of enemies and adversaries, when you go in, there's going to be, they're going to fear you. They're going to turn, tuck their tail and run. He says, I'm going to be fighting for you. But this, this laundry list of perks goes all the way back to what? Because you served the Lord. Because you worshiped God. He said, you're going to have bread and you're going to have water. He said, I'm going to take sickness out of the midst of you. He said, I'm going to do all these wondrous things. These are some very heavy promises in my concern. Heavy promises, great securities. Amen. But the reserve for proper worship. The reserve for proper worship. And so lasting victory then was just somehow capsulated in true worship. Now, praise will not give you lasting victory. Because since praise is momentary and it is over momentary things and has to do with momentary things, it will not give you, amen, everlasting victory. But worship can give you lasting victory because it pertains to eternal things. Amen. Exodus 24 and verse 17, okay? We looked a little bit at those that are kind of on the side of the mount and Moses who is very close to God in his worship. Now look at this in Exodus 24 and verse 17. 
the Bible says, and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount to who? In the eyes of the children of Israel. What Moses is seeing close to God is the same thing. Listen to me. They're seeing this. It's still God. What Moses is seeing close to God is the same thing that Abihu and Nadab and those are seeing on the side of the mountain. It's the same thing that these people are seeing further out. But their perspective of what is the same is different. The people that's furthest in their distance, if you could say, in their worship to God, sees the glory of the Lord like a devouring fire. They interpreted the same thing that Moses said. He's sharing with me some things that nobody shared. Out there, it looks to them like, because of their distance in worship, like a devouring fire. Because when you get as close as Moses did, what looks like a devouring fire when you're on the perimeter of your worship to God. When you get as close as you did, you know what the Lord said to Moses? Out here, it looks like a devouring fire. Man, remember the confrontation where we get in the presence of the Lord, we feel uneasy, we start viewing ourselves as though it's like, bam, smack them dead, do whatever, they got stuff in their life, he's going to consume them and all this. It looks like a devouring fire. But as I get closer to God, you know what God shared with Moses? He said, Moses, he said, build me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. On, whenever you're at distance worshiping God, you're thinking, man, he's wanting to devour me. But the closer you get in your worship of God, you understand he doesn't have an issue with me so much as he has an issue with my behavior and my sin. The devourings for my behavior and my sin. But he wants relationship with me. He wants to dwell with me. Amen. And so, here's the thing. True worshipers, here's the thing. True worshipers will be misunderstood by those that are on the perimeter. Mm -hmm. Part and parcel because when you get to that place where Moses was and God shares, you, shares with you things that's not shared with those on the perimeter, that causes a little ruffling of the covers. Well, who does he think he is? He's up there 40 days and 40 nights? What's going on? You don't think it was happening among the people it was. Because the Bible declares after those seven chapters of details of God telling Moses concerning all the pattern of the tabernacle, sharing all this stuff, because there's Moses right there with God, man. Oh, he's awesome. And he's sharing all this stuff. Everybody out here on the fringe, Exodus 32 and verse 1 What's their statement? And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, what's taking him so long? It don't take all that. What's going on with him? Insomuch that they cry out to Aaron, say, Aaron, make us some gods that we can worship. Look what they say. Because concerning this Moses guy, we want not what has become of him people that find themselves in that close distance, close vicinity, worship of God, you might as well expect 
Amen. A word from those that are on the fringe, words of misunderstanding about what you're doing and what you're engaging in. Well, they just think they're too good. No, they're where they're at because they know they're not good. <laughs> Someone say amen. Look, look what happened. I don't have this scripture up there, but Exodus 24, 18. A near worship experience like Moses had. Look at this now. The people that were at the bottom, even those that were on the side of the mount, they seen a great cloud up on the mount. All right? But a near worship experience like Moses had took him, look now, beyond the outskirts of the cloud the Bible says that Moses got into the midst of the cloud. And you're going to see things and experience things inside the cloud that those that are just looking at the outside of the cloud are never going to see. Amen. And so at the far off worship place, the people saw where God stood. They, they described it and they, they said it's heavenly. In essence... They said, this is heavenly. They ate and drank. They had fellowship with God. But Moses, he surpasses all that and enters into revelation. Amen. Because here's what happens. In the beginning of our worship experience, again, it exposes who we are in the presence of God. We've already traveled that road. It seems to us it's a devouring fire. This is not good. But if we'll deepen our worship and we'll deepen our understanding because as you worship, your understanding will grow. And it grows from a devouring fire to this is a heavenly thing. This is fellowship with God. And if you go on a little deeper, it's wow. This is revelation, amen, of how to be committed, how to be faithful, how to be pleasing to God. And guess what? He's not against me. He wants me. He wants to spend time with me. Amen. So as we grow in our worship, we grow from a place that God's not so much wanting to devour us as he is wanting to spend time with us. He wants to take care of our sin, but he's not wanting to annihilate us. He's wanting us, but he's wanting to divide us from He came to save us from our sins. He still wants us, but he don't want the sin along with us. But we learn that as we grow in our relationship and our worship to God. Let's go back to John 4. We've been there almost every week. But John 4, within just a few spaces, there's worship mentioned like 10 times, okay? And so in John 4, he tells them in verse 22, he says, ye worship, ye know not what. He says, we know what we worship. Look now, the Bible says, for salvation is of the Jews. He says, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Purposefully, purposefully. Jesus ties worship with salvation. He ties worship with salvation because of the father of the Jews. Who was considered the father of the Jews? Abraham. Go all the way back to Abraham. But what was Abraham's family a part of? Terah, Abraham's father, was an idolater. Abraham was a part of an idolatrous family. But he really had this worshiping thing down 
just the wrong object. Really had this worshiping aspect down. He just had the wrong object. He needed a little adjustment. <laughs> you go to the chiropractor for adjustment. Well, he needed a little adjustment. A little adjustment on his object of worship. So as a result, though, the Jewish people, the salvation of the Jewish people, really, the salvation of the Jewish people was based upon a heathen man worshiping false gods, getting his object of worship right. You know what God says? He says, I'm seeking some worshipers. He says, if they, if they're, let me tell you, out beyond these four walls are some great worshipers. Because the gods they serve, they serve with no restraint. And God's saying, if I can just get them and give them an adjustment <laughs> and just get their object of worship right, then everything's going to be great. And that's the reason why sometimes God, for his church that's supposed to know him, he has a little problem with us because we served other gods better than we serve him. We served our alcohol better than we served him. We served our lifestyle of sleeping around better than we served him. We served our jealousy better than we served him. We serve our gossip better than we serve him. And so he's saying, man, if you had such that type of zeal for that, I'm just trying to change your object. Don't, don't change the worshiping aspect. Just change your object of worship. Amen. And so that's what's happened. So salvation was of the Jews because they were a worshiping people that God said, let me just give you a little adjustment here and we'll set you on the right course. The Bible says in John 17, verse 3, and it may seem like I'm hurrying along tonight because I understand what I plan on covering, okay? John 17 and verse number 3. The Bible says, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So this, this is life eternal, that you would know God, the true God. Now, we have people today that by and large would rather acquaint people with God's principles, God's provisions, God's prosperity, His promises. But that isn't life eternal. He said this is life eternal, that you know God. Not that you know what He does or all His perks, but that you would know God. Knowing God was life eternal. Now, i got to move on. Exodus 32, 32. We're back to Exodus. We're in Exodus here quite a bit tonight, right in this little area. But in Exodus 32, 32, after, after the nation of Israel said, okay, Aaron, build us some gods, and the, the, the golden calf was made, and they worshipped that and did all kinds of crazy, unthinkable things around about that. You know, they, they were breaking commandments that Moses hadn't even brought down the mount yet, you know. And uh, they're, they're doing all this thing. They're having a worship problem. We're having a worship problem. And, uh, uh, you know, Moses is coming down and, and uh, they're, they're, they're speaking there. Was it Joshua? says, I believe there's the, I hear the sound of war in the camp. Moses, I don't think that's the sound of war. There's merriment. There's something going on down there. And they get down there and he understands what was all taking place. And God's really upset. He, he's, he, he's upset. He's mad. I could even say that he's mad. As a matter of fact, he's thinking and pondering, you know what, maybe I'll just wipe this whole nation out, and Moses, I'll, I'll make a nation out of you. <laughs> I mean, look at this. So he's kind of mad and upset, and, 
and uh, really, really just upset about this. And, and Moses talks to God, and he talks to him a little bit later after, after they kind of get things all straightened up back down there, and he talks to him again. And this is what he says in Exodus 32, 32, because the Lord's a little mad. And Moses says, yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, this is Moses, he's pleading to God for the people. He said, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, Moses says, blot me, I pray thee out of thy book which thou hast written. Listen to me. So here, God is wanting to exercise some heavy judgment on people that's the furthest distance in their worship from him. Moses, the one that's closest in distance to worship to him, says, God, just forgive their sin, but if you don't, blot me out. We have a true worshiper doing some bargaining for people that are not as true as himself. And he's just saying, God, just forgive their sin or otherwise just blot me out. Listen to me. God doesn't make no rash judgment and just slay a whole bunch of them at that moment. Why? Listen to me very clearly. If you've heard anything tonight, hear this. Because God would rather bear our sin than bear the loss of our worship. God would rather bear their sin than lose Moses, blotting him out and losing his worship. And it was the story, not just of the Old Testament, it was the story of the New Testament. One of my favorite verses is of 2 Corinthians 5.19. The Bible states these words, to wit, that God was in Christ doing what? Reconciling the world unto himself. What's he? He's won the world back in relationship with him. But look, not imputing their trespasses. He says, I'm bearing their sin because I don't want to lose their worship. I'm taking their sin to a cross because I can't blot them out and do away with them because if I do that, I lose the worship. But if I can bear what they can't bear, if I can bear their sin, I still can have reconciliation and get their worship. Listen, reconciliation though can't happen without forgiveness. Amen. Reconciliation cannot happen without forgiveness. So he had to bear the sin. He had to forgive them in order to have reconciliation. He says, I had to forgive them in order for them to get ever close to me again to be able to worship me as a true worshiper. But they can't keep their sin and worship me and I can't annihilate them in their sin and have worship. So I'll bear it. I'll take it because I can't suffer the loss of the relationship. Someone just say hallelujah. Oh God, oh God, oh God. We do have a merciful Savior. We do have a merciful God. Some of us have flubbed up and messed up time and time again. But you know what God says? I'm not marking them off. I'm not doing away with them. I'll bear their infraction. I'll bear their wrong because I can't suffer the loss of their worship.
Amen. Because if I offer forgiveness, then that opens the door for reconciliation. And if we get reconciliation and renewed in a formed relationship, I get what I desire. Worship. Worship. Hallelujah. We can go home now. I feel like that's really what I wanted to get to tonight, so we can just shut down. <laughs> but we're not taking a vote. <laughs> Amen. Man, that just wows me. What was such a wow factor for me is Moses is the true worshiper that's standing in for all these distance worshipers. And God says, I'll bear them so I can keep you. That's how much he values true worship. I'll bear that so I can have you. Wow. And so Moses intercedes for the people of Israel. And in the remembrance or in the recounting of all this in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 10, it's recounted like this, that the Lord hearkened unto Moses. Almost like God is hearkening to the voice of a man, but it goes a little bit more detailed than that. God is hearkening to the voice of a true worshiper. The Bible says in Matthew 26, starting with verse number 6, And now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? The disciples asked with this action of this woman that came to Simon the leper's house. She's bestowing this upon the Lord. And they asked, To what purpose is this waste? The disciples asked. And no doubt Jesus steps in because of everything that's taken place. And through his demonstration and through his life, and we, I've made mention of this before, uh, he's clearly indicating to them that this is not waste. If I could state it like this, this is worship. But their question is, to what purpose? To what purpose was this? Why is she doing this? What's the reason behind her doing this? Have we missed something? Jesus, did you do something for her? Now she's reciprocating and doing something for you? No. She's here doing what she's doing just because I am who I am. Worship. Now look. In Matthew 26 and verse 13, further down, he says, Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, there shall also this, that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. So Jesus tells them, he says, Hey guys, what you're presently describing as waste what you're presently describing as waste has a very long shelf life. What you're presently describing as waste is so, so pervasive that it's going to funnel throughout the whole world where the gospel is going to be preached. We know by Scripture that the gospel before it comes back is going to be preached everywhere. So this, this thing that you're calling waste has a very long shelf life and it's very pervasive and this will serve as a memorial 
for her. Now, what are memorials? Memorials is something not just to keep somebody in memory when they're alive, but even after they're dead. He said, this that you're calling waste is going to have a long shelf life, and it's going to be a memorial for her. If I can say it like this, a memorial for her when she is dead and gone. Listen, listen, her worship will outlast her life. Because it's eternal. I come to tell the First Apostolic Church on this Wednesday evening that when we come in here and prostrate ourselves before the Lord and worship Him, you are engaging something that is going to outlast your physical life here upon the earth. That while you're dead in the tomb pushing up pull-ups, that there's tulips, there's going to be some worship still pervasive and going to and fro in the heavens before the throne room of God. You're going to be dead as Abel was spoken of, yet speaking worship is going to be happening uh huh but see if you die and all you've ever done is praise it dies when you die temporary but if you plug into worship when you die there's something still ascending there's something still going there's something still pervading Amen. You gotta run. So you look at the scripture. There are different anointings that takes place with this woman. Many uh, ascribe as Mary. Um, there's different anointings that take place. Uh, some see them all as one. Others see them as individual anointings. Uh, some believe that Mary actually anointed Jesus twice. Was even going to anoint him a third time came firstly as a sinner and anointed his feet longing to receive forgiveness at whatever the cost may be all times we read of that like in Luke chapter number 7 anointed his head at the end of his earthly ministry in Matthew 26 like we read and also recorded in Mark chapter 14 but if I can just share something and this is, this is not mine but this is, this is Pastor Arnold concerning that the anointings that took place on, on Jesus and this is what he says, and this was just so good, I just had to share it. Pastor Arnold. He states this, and this is a direct quote. He said, there he is hanging on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth as though unworthy of both, abandoned by all, breathing his last agonizing breaths. But what's that he smells? More than the salty smell of blood, trickling down his fractured face, stronger than the noise of dice thrown by the soldiers overpowering the jeers of the Jewish priests. It's the fragrance of past worship captured in the locks of his hair. He smells the oil of the alabaster box, the memory of the worship of someone that has anointed him. It strengthens his resolve until he finishes the task that's at hand. Because the same woman that anointed him through his process of life anointed him and witnessed his crucifix. Look, and she said to herself, even after death, she and a group of ladies, what are they going to do whenever it's capable of being done? They're going to anoint. I've done this all through life. <laughs> I did it when he was living. And I'm going to go to anoint. I'm going to get the precious spices and the ointments together. I'm going to go to the tomb. But whenever she gets to the tomb, the tomb's what? Empty. 
She's crying. She's asking, where did you lay the Lord's body? I want to anoint him. She's a worshiper. He is supposedly dead, but I want to anoint him. True worship will get you to a place that you'll even anoint dead dreams. True worship. So he's not in the tomb. Remember the story. It was as with custom of Old Testament high priests that they would take the blood of the sacrifice. They're going to take the blood of the sacrifice, going to go to the mercy seat. But as Jesus is doing that, literally him being the land, taking the blood from himself, going to go to the heavenlies to present the blood at the altar in heaven as the high priest. But as he's going, he hears a familiar voice. Mary. I, I'm, I know that voice. I know that presence. What Jesus was about ready to do was perhaps one of the most important things, important tasks, even of an earthly high priest, and that is presenting the blood to the mercy seat. The high priest had to be very careful. They had to avoid contact, becoming ceremonially defiled in the action of going there. Amen. Couldn't allow anybody to touch them. But just as Jesus was about ready to carry out that act and go to the heavenlies to sprinkle the blood, if you will, on that true mercy seat, he says, wait a minute, there's a true worshiper here. <laughs> and so what he's about ready to do is so vitally important but he stops in his tracks because here's someone he's known through the process of his life of being a true worshiper and he turns behind her and he states some words Mary, Mary she turns about she recognizes who this is this is the one I've poured ointment on before this is the one I've entered the presence when nothing even had been done for me but just because of who he is I just put this on him and you know what what is so amazing he had such this important task but that important task wasn't any more important than the value of the true worship that had came to him through this lady that he stops and look at the trust that he has for true worshipers he just says very basically he doesn't have to go through a long laundry list of a dissertation of 52 pages about why she should not touch him. He just says, don't touch me, but I want to stay here because I know what happens when you and I get together. Uh -huh. Could you imagine that God so wild and factuated by your worship that even whenever he's on task of doing some very important business, just because you show up, he says, wait a moment. I know what usually happens whenever they come around. Hmm. Wouldn't it be amazing that you can walk in church sometime, and I'm not talking about we call God and he's, he's some puppet on a string, but couldn't it be amazing that you have such a good relationship with God that you could walk in, amen, with something in your body, and because you show up, he says, wait a minute. I know the relationship that we all have. <sighs> Look now, he was behind her. He called, he called to her. He called her. He said, Mary, Mary. He got her attention. Her, his voice. Uh, I'm hastening to a close. I really am sorry. I've been going, just kind of going like Energizer Bunny Rabbit here the past several weeks. But that's all right. Amen. Go back to Psalms 95. We, we hit on this verse of Scripture early on in the process of all of the series here. Now, we know in Scripture, I think maybe I, I leaned on this, but there are several places in Scripture where we are commanded to praise in Scripture. But worship is, is never commanded. It, it's just prompted and provoked by being in His presence. All right? 
And so worship is just an act of our will. It's just love answering to love. You know, it's just love responding to love. But in Psalms 95, when we go back to this formable scripture that we started with a long time ago, uh, though it may seem, in verse 6 he says, Oh, come, remember now, he was talking about worship all beforehand, and then he goes to praise beforehand, then he comes to this worship mode in verse number 6. Oh, come, let us worship. Remember the bowing down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is what? We're not talking about his deeds, for he is God, our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand today if ye will hear his voice listen to me in the position of praise we do not hear his voice it's the bridegroom hearing the voice of his bride in praise but in worship it's reciprocated in worship it is the voice of the bridegroom being heard by the bride today if you will hear his voice why is that important? Because here it is. I close. Stand. I'm closing. I am. And those hands, whenever I've tried to read Scripture over them, that's really been wicked tonight. There's no wonder then. Listen. There's no wonder then as he addresses the church of Lady Osea in Revelations 3.20 that he stated, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my Why? Because if they were to hear the voice, they would have been in a posture, not of praise, but of worship. If you'll hear my voice, he said, I'll come in. I'll sup with you, you with me. We'll have a good time together if you'll hear my voice. But in order to hear my voice, you've got to be in a position of worship. Amen. The vicinity of worship. You might be at the outskirts of the mountain. You might be on the side of the mountain. You might be a Moses in very close proximity to God. But at each of those junctures, it's the same true, holy, pure God. But your perspective will be dictated by where you are in your position of worship. You either see him as a devouring fire, you'll see him as something heavenly if it's a meet and greet fellowship station, or you'll be a Moses that says this is revelatory. God's really just telling me he wants to be with me. And this is what pleases him. And this is what he likes. It's all determined about in that vicinity of worship. Hallelujah. If you'll stand tonight by the mason, you can come. Hallelujah. Whew. Oh God, if we can just bow our heads in this place. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.